Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, Monday, February 12th, 2024. The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, the day after the Super Bowl. I know you all know I am a huge sports fan. I, I watched the uh, Kansas City 89ers square off against the San Francisco Chiefs. It was uh, an absolute uh, bang-up game. Uh, there was a, a guy named uh, Patrick who was involved. Uh, Travis Swift also did did a, a tremendous job as the uh, uh, tight end, I want to say. There's a spider crawling up my camera right now. So if you saw like an in, a nondescript blur, that was, uh, that was why. But uh, anyway, I thought uh, Taylor Mahomes uh, stole the show. And I, I loved her uh, concert in Tokyo, by the way. I didn't get a chance to see it, but I, I saw some clips going on. No, no, no. Uh, before you all tune out, sometimes the sports fans get really mad when I do this. I do know what the Super Bowl is. It isn't just the uh, haircut that I had when I was a kid. I, I, I even watched the Super Bowl. And not just for the halftime show. I watched it, watched it. Because football is, uh, by virtue of me having played it in high school, the only sport that I can understand and explain. And uh, next to my wife. Because uh, I know like this much, uh, she knows this much. So it's like the only sport where I get to explain it to someone else. And then, you know, just you know, quickly, discreetly Google if she asks a question I, I don't know about. But uh, nevertheless, I, I hope that all the teams had fun. Isn't that what you say? I hope that all the teams enjoyed uh, themselves. It was uh, it was a good game. It was a bit of a nail biter. Uh, my uh, little political interjection on this, and I, I tweeted this yesterday, is that basically we need to uh, see a conservative party or any party that is poised to take over for the liberals, which right now is only the conservatives, run on the most populist policy imaginable which would be a policy saying that uh, the CRTC uh, is banning its requirement of SIM subbing. Do you know what SIM subbing is? It is when the Canadian outlets, uh, news like outlets like CTV, have to sub in their crappy Canadian feeds when you're trying to watch CBS. So you don't get to watch the American Super Bowl ads. You have to watch, uh, you know, some like weird Southern Ontario Technical College's commercial instead of some star-studded uh, American Super Bowl ad. So. Uh, that would be like a sports policy I could get behind. Let Canadians watch the American Super Bowl ads. Although I, I shared this and uh, one response just said, or how about we just abolish the CRTC altogether, which is also an acceptable uh, populist policy that a party may wish to run on. So uh, perhaps that, that can be the one area of overlap between me and the sports fans, which is uh, ending the ban on seeing American football ads. Nevertheless, hope you had a wonderful weekend. Not as good for the Liberal government right now. Uh, we'll get in a, a few moments' time to the Auditor General's report. She has come out with what I would call a scathing indictment of the Liberal government's handling of this uh, file. It's a boondoggle that's even more expensive than we had previously understood. And that is insofar as she was able to figure it out because it was so mismanaged and the records were so poorly kept. Uh, the Auditor General doesn't even know exactly how much was spent on the Arrive Can app. But I wanted to begin by talking about this horrendous display that took place over the weekend. I'll, I'll share a clip of it. This was a uh, an attempted arson, I mean, successful in the sense that there was actually vandalism, but an attempted arson against a Catholic church in Regina, Saskatchewan. Okay, 
blood. That was uh, horrendous, and I apologize about the profanity there. We usually try to censor that out for the nice virgin ears that I know tune into this show, but uh, in this particular context, we made an exception because I think it's important to see how vile uh, these people are as they sit there callously and try to burn down a Catholic church. Now, church burnings in Canada are not anomalous. There have been dozens of, uh, of graffitis, attempted arsons, in many cases successful arsons, that have taken place, all going back with alarming frequency to the announcement of unmarked graves at uh, Kamloops, which triggered a process by which people uh, take out their anger on Christianity against churches that have had nothing to do with anything uh, to do with anything. And that is uh, worded deliberately in that way because this is uh, inexplicable and absolutely tragic. Now, you'd think that we could all as a society get around and say, okay, I oppose burning churches. I oppose burning mosques. I oppose burning synagogues. I oppose vandalizing these institutions. And yet there is radio silence from many people in media and the political establishment when it is a Christian church that is targeted. Now take, for example, that church in Regina. There has been a comment condemning it from conservative leader Pierre Polyev. I checked just a moment ago, absolutely no response whatsoever from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And you may think, okay, well, he can't respond to just anything and everything that happens. Well, whenever something has happened to do with a mosque, or in many cases a synagogue, Justin Trudeau cannot denounce it quickly enough. This was a one such denunciation when there were threats against a mosque. I want to start this morning by addressing the unacceptable threats that were sent to a Toronto mosque over the weekend. Islamophobia and right-wing extremism have no place in our country or our communities. We must always stand united against hate or intolerance of any kind. No issue whatsoever with that statement. There was a threat. It was reported on in the news. Justin Trudeau says, absolutely, we denounced this. 20 seconds, that was all it took. There was also a case a few years ago, you may recall, when a young schoolgirl in Toronto, a hijab-wearing Muslim, claimed that she was targeted because of her Muslim faith by someone. And this was a case that was very quickly questioned by a lot of people. There were a lot of things that did not add up about this, but that didn't start, uh, that didn't stop the unsubstantiated allegation from making waves around the country, and again, warranting a denunciation from Justin Trudeau. My heart goes out to the uh, young girl who was uh, attacked, uh, seemingly for her religion. Um, I can't imagine how afraid she must have been. Is there a danger in responding so quickly and seizing upon these events as symbols of our tolerance? Unfortunately, we've seen a pattern over the past uh, months of increased hate crimes against um, religious minorities, particularly uh, against uh, uh, young women of, of uh, uh, racialized backgrounds. 
um, this is something that we need to take very, very, very seriously. And um, the pattern and the trend lines that we're seeing is something that, as you pointed out, uh, is one of those warning signs around uh, increased intolerance and reminding people that we are a country that uh, defends freedom of religion, that defends freedom of expression, that defends people's rights to uh, go to school and not be uh, fearful or, or harassed is fundamental to who we are. The second part of that quote was after Toronto police had come out and said, yeah, this didn't really happen. There, there's no evidence of this. In fact, there was evidence suggesting it was untrue. But he does the old Dan Rather fake but accurate thing there where he says, oh, well, yes, but there, I mean, it could have been true. All of these other things have happened. There's been an alarming and we always stand up for this. But again, why are you silent when a church is burned? Now, there is a, a subset of people in this country, delus uh, delusional radicals like uh, the burn it all down lady that are celebrating uh, the burning down of churches. I think Jerry Butts had made, if I'm recalling correctly, a comment seemingly justifying the burning of churches. I, I, I'll have to look up the exact wording of it, but I, it was something that I recall being really, really icky and, and going down that road of, of justifying or coming close to it. And when I point that out, this is not a contest. I'm not saying that Justin Trudeau should not condemn acts of violence or threats or graffiti and vandalism against Muslims, against Jews. Absolutely not. I'm saying why on earth not do it when it's against Christians. Now, he proclaims to be a Catholic. He proclaims to be a Christian. Apart from the Harsha Walia burn it all down folks, most people in this country, I think, could generally agree, I would hope, that we shouldn't target religious institutions in general in this way. Now, you know, maybe I could be proven wrong on that point. I, I, I shudder to think that perhaps I would be. But it is incredibly, incredibly disgusting that we have a political class that is so either anti-Christian or so desiring of appeasing the people who are anti-Christian that they won't stand up and say that 20-second condemnation, this should never happen. Absolutely absurd. Uh, one of the other things that is absurd, to attempt a, a segue there, a smooth transition, is the report from the Auditor General this morning. She was appearing before the Public Accounts Committee. She'll be holding, actually, I believe right now she's holding a press conference. But uh, if you chose me over the Auditor General, I thank you so much. Uh, not that she's not a lovely lady, I'm sure. But I, I, I like to think we offer a little bit more excitement on this show than an accountant speaking. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> don't answer that if you disagree. Uh, th this was the finding here, and there were a lot of them, but I'm going to play a couple of clips from her appearance before the committee that I think capture and encapsulate what it is that she found when she tried to dig in deep with ArriveCan. This is her uh, getting a very simple and point-blank question from Conservative MP Michael Barrett about whether it was worth the cost. Auditor, thank you very much for being here today. Did Canadian taxpayers get value for money from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government on the $60 million ArriveCan app? So we concluded that um, the public service did not ensure that Canada received best value for money. I would tell you that we paid too much for this application. We paid too much. Now, anyone who saw the price tag when this came up a while back, that it could have done, been done for 80000 and, and ended up costing tens of millions, probably could have figured that out. But it's good to have from a nonpartisan figure the official finding of such. And this was, 
I think, a point that was important to stress in relation to that, because there were also scathing indictments of mismanagement, of records not being kept, not even the basic fundamental level of due diligence. And the government's excuse here, oh, it's just COVID, everyone was working from home, it was difficult, line wires got crossed. So Conservative MP Kelly Block tried to probe that point with the Auditor General, Karen Hogan. So time and time again, we have heard that we should cut the public service or servants some slack because it was during the pandemic. And we even heard it today in, in regards to public servants working from home. Do you believe the glaring disregard for basic mismanagement and contracting practices, as well as the lack of documentation, can be sufficiently excused by the fact that it was during a pandemic? I know I said it in my opening remarks. I do not believe that an emergency is an excuse for um, throwing out the rules, throwing the rules out of the window. Um, these are some really basic elements that I would have expected to see, documenting a decision on who is being selected and why, why they have the skills to carry out the work that you need done. Um, basic bookkeeping uh, factors that I would expect to see, invoices well supported, making it clear uh, what work should be charged to what project that's ongoing. Uh, I think that my advice to public servants would be to document as you go. Um, and we saw other contracts throughout the pandemic, while, while had opportunities for improvement, were not um, as glaring uh, as, as the lack of documentation that we see. Thank here. you. So the crucial part of this is that uh, public servants were not trying to get value for money. They weren't making an effort of adequately tracking how much was being spent. They didn't do their due diligence. They didn't do basic management. And it's not enough just to blame it all on COVID. And this is what the government has tried to do. And you could even see in the liberal questions that were being put to Karen uh, Hogan this morning on committee, they were trying to just pass the buck anywhere and everywhere, but on the government. So at a certain point, CBSA is going to be made out to be the fall guy and some lowly bureaucrats going to be made to be the fall guy but it really is the government that has to own this because the bureaucrats were implementing a government program this unnecessary app which we're just talking about the mismanagement of it not even the fundamental question of whether this app was just and constitutional and violated or violated people's civil liberties which i suspect it did but that wasn't part of what the auditor general was delving into but the real takeaway here even with the benefit of hindsight, she could not adequately figure out the cost of this thing. She could not adequately figure out how much Canadians spent on this. She did her best, came up with a figure of around $60 million, way more than the $54 million that was initially uh, said and way more than the $80,000 it was supposed to be. But she's had to do some guesswork because of how shoddy the records are. Aaron Woodrick is the head of the domestic policy program over at the McDonald Laurier Institute and joins me on the line now. Aaron, always good to talk to you here. I mean, at a certain point, you have to wonder, did any of this go the way it was supposed to? And it really doesn't seem like it. 
No, it doesn't. I mean, it's not every day that you have the Auditor General coming out and saying, you know, I can't even tell you how much this costs. There's so little of a paper trail. And I think her comments are just damning. Look, it, it, look, it is possibly true that during a pandemic and, you know, people were panicking. Remember, this is early 2020. People are in a real hurry. OK, so maybe everything isn't exactly by the book. But her point is, in some cases, there's not even the most basic notation. There aren't even basic invoices. This is not just a matter of, you know, rushing through the process because you think that the sky is going to fall. They just completely gave up on some of the most basic safeguards. And the result is, you know, tens of millions of dollars wasted um, for taxpayers. And, and again, you know, this is just one aspect of spending during the pandemic. This is just an example of the lack of safeguards in place. And, you know, Canadians have just paid an eye-watering sum for, for basically nothing. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, she was focused just on arrive can here, but I, I have to assume, and and you would know this uh, better than than I would, given your work. But I have to assume that there is underneath this uh, revealing, I think, a, a bigger problem with procurement in Canada, because something like jumps out here and says that this, to me, is not an aberration. This is probably yeah. business as usual. The fact that there's an entire company set up that doesn't produce anything, that just cashes a huge fat check and then finds other people to do the work strikes me as evidence that this is pretty much business as usual in Ottawa. Yeah, it's a serious problem. And there's a bunch of layers, I would say, with respect to procurement that are the problem. I mean, you do have this sort of basic ignorance of the rules. Uh, you have people issuing, uh, you know, sole source contracts when they should be open to competitive bids. Um, you also have in a lot of areas, you know, very sort of strange political layers to rather than getting sort of the best bang for your buck, and I'm thinking particularly for military procurement, you have government trying to fiddle with making sure that, well, they got to be main canon, they have to create a certain number of jobs in this region. And if anyone who's followed, for example, our, our disastrous shipbuilding program, I mean, if you think if you think wasting $50 million on a phone app is bad, wait till you hear about the tens of billions of dollars that we're getting for, for not receiving ships yet. I mean, it is these are just eye-watering sums of money, um, and procurement in this country is badly, badly broken. Um, there needs to be a real top to bottom rethink about how we can ensure this process is fair, it's competitive, and it is immune from political interference. Yeah, and I, I think that is where we get to the point here of whether this was a bureaucracy run amok or is this something that is uh, laid at Justin Trudeau's feet? I, now, there's an argument that Justin Trudeau has to own what the bureaucracy does when they're implementing his strategies. But what's your read on that from what's come out so far? Well, they certainly, they, as you can, as you as you mentioned, they're trying to barge pull away from this. And I mean, part of that is just basic politics. This is a government that's in very deep trouble in the polls, so they're not obviously looking to take ownership of any more problems. But there's no getting around it. I mean, you are responsible at the political level for the mistakes of the department underneath you, and that's one of the questions that I have here. Is the money's already gone, and that's unfortunate. But will there be any consequences? Is anybody going to get fired? Is anybody going to get reprimanded? Is any minister going to resign for this? I do think is is, is something that's extremely frustrating for a lot of Canadians right now is that even when you make mistakes, it used to be just assumed that someone would take responsibility. There would be some consequence to failure or, or, or stealing or mismanagement. We don't have that anymore. We have, uh, you know, the best you're going to get is a minister go out solemnly before the cameras and say, you know, I take full responsibility and, and then they won't do anything. They'll just say those words. And they, and they sort of, that's almost worse doing it that way, Andrew, because it deprives them of any meaning. What is the point in saying you take responsibility if there's just no consequence other than having to say the words?
Yeah, and I, and I don't want to compare apples to oranges here because there, there was a lot going on with ad scam back in the day that I have not seen evidence of here. But just to compare the numbers here, the ad scam was, I think, about $2 million in contracts without a proper bidding system. With ArriveCan, we're talking about something that went up to $60 million. Yeah, it, it, look, it's a lot of money. And it's funny how in this country, scandals over waste don't, often don't depend on the amount, right? People, everyone will remember Bevota's orange juice. That was only $16, right? Whereas in other cases, I just mentioned the shipbuilding procurement. Now you're into tens of billions of dollars or these uh, subsidies for electric vehicle batteries. So sometimes it's not the dollar. It's just the egregiousness of how it's done. And I think ArriveCan in that respect is particularly um, controversial because, as you mentioned, a lot of people were very put off um, you know, by the the nature of this app, you know, this sort of, um, you know, whether or not it was violating Canadians' rights, it was very draconian. Uh, so you add that layer onto it. It wasn't just that $50 million was wasted. It was in service of something that was pretty dark in and of itself. So explain to me what could come of this. I mean, obviously the Conservatives are, are making a, a bit of hay about this, as I think is, is reasonable enough to do. The Liberals, it seemed like from the little bit of the committee that was on earlier, are desperately trying to just to shove the blame somewhere in a corner, like ran, some random procurement officer with CBSA. They want to own this whole thing. Where do you think it will go? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't see anybody resigning. I mean, it would be nice if someone actually had the wow. dignity to resign over this, a minister or even a, even civil servants, or whether there would be investigations of the specific individuals responsible for this. Um, I I just don't see that happening. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, they will, the, the tactic, first of all, is to deny and then to stall um, in the hopes that something else will pop up in the news cycle and people will lose interest in this. And I, I unfortunately think that there's a... And not a non-zero chance that that's what's going to happen here. So one thing that I, I would be very curious about as well to get your take on it is whether this you think is the tip of the iceberg, because you alluded earlier to this is just one aspect of pandemic pan, uh, pandemic spending. We had uh, billions and billions of dollars going out the door. Uh, we've already seen with CERB, there were a lot of people that got it that didn't have to. CRA has had mixed success in collecting that. But you go to other programs and other spending, and there's never really been a deep dive into it. No, and I think that there needs to be a top to bottom review of all of that spending from from the pandemic period. And I mean, in addition, we've called for an, uh, a review of the all the COVID-19 pandemic measures generally. Right. So not just not just the spending, but all the programming decisions, all the policy decisions taken during that time. We all know what some of those are. There were some of them very controversial to this day. But uh, this was a lot of money that went out the door. And I think a lot of people at the time said, OK, we're willing to we're willing to, to lower our standards um, because it's an emergency, but not indefinitely and not without a, a review after the fact. And I, I still think that needs to happen. Um, this is, this is you know, we're not talking about a, a little bit of money here. We're talking about a significant amount of money. And if for no other reason, then to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again, because some of these problems um, can't be attributed to the pandemic. It's just, uh, there's just poor mechanisms in place um, to, to ensure that money can't get wasted this easily. Aaron Woodrick is the Domestic Policy Program Director over at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Thank you very much, sir, as always, for your time. Thanks a lot, Andrew.
All right, Aaron Woodrick, thank you as always. Good to talk to him. Now, uh, one thing that I, I wanted to bring up here, I actually had this story on Friday, and uh, just by virtue of the show schedule, I had to wait a whole weekend to talk about it, but it's been making a, a bit of a, a bit of waves around the internet, this story. So the World Health Organization every year, so one thing that UN and WHO and all these bodies do, they love creating a convention, a treaty, a, a framework, whatever it is, and then every year they have the same conference to talk about it. And they call it Conference of the Parties or COP. Now, we usually hear COP in terms of the uh, COP uh, 28, 29 climate summits. But there's, you know, COP this, COP that. Every, every one of these agreements has a COP. Now, the World Health Organization, they're up to COP 11 on their tobacco control conference. And every year, uh, countries send delegates from around the world. They gather in a lovely location, spend a bunch of money, and they talk about ways that they can go back and restrict or end tobacco usage. Now, I have never covered one of these things, but I, I was alerted to a presentation that the Canadian government delegate or one of the delegates, a Health Canada uh, tobacco control czar, gave a few weeks back ahead of the uh, the COP11 summit this week in uh, Panama. It actually wrapped up on Saturday. And I, I'm going to share a couple of clips here because when I, I learned what was being floated as reasonable tobacco control measures, I was quite baffled that this had not received more coverage. This is a very, very lovely lady. Laura Smith is her name. She's with the uh, with Health Canada's uh, Tobacco Control Directorate. But this was her listing just some of the available ideas that governments have. So let's start to look at some of these examples under 2.1. Measures relating to, to Article 2.1 can be quite diverse, and we've already heard uh, some examples here this morning. But here are a few more uh, that could be in line with Article 2.1. So smoke-free private spaces involve the regulation of smoking in private places such as homes, vehicles, multi-unit housing, government-subsidized housing, balconies, patios, and yards belonging to housing complexes. Another measure involves designating specific stores to sell tobacco, such as selling tobacco products only in specific specialist stores. So those were ideas that she says are consistent with 2.1, section 2.1 of the framework for tobacco control. Now, to be clear, she is not saying that Canada is going to do those things. But what she is saying is that these are these are policies, these are measures that are consistent with what Canada has agreed to do. And this fed into a motion that Canada introduced, a draft resolution that Canada introduced, which I, as I understand it, was passed, was adopted by other countries to strike a task force to come up with a list of these things so that we could have countries do more of them. So it's one of the ideas she's putting to countries to say, hey, you guys can do this. We can all do this. Not allowing smoking in private homes, sometimes even in patios and driveways is one of the examples. And then she also used this to transition into what are called end game strategies. These are policies that governments could embrace to abolish smoking altogether. Here were some of those that she listed as examples. So as I mentioned, there are also some examples of measures that may align with Article 2.1 and also relate close, more closely to end game strategies. So one, uh, again, we've heard already today about the introduction of tobacco-free generation legislation, which involves restricting the acquisition of tobacco and tobacco products to all those born after a specific year, 
with the intent of phasing out tobacco sales and preventing young people from starting to use tobacco. Another strategy also includes phasing out tobacco sales, and that's the sinking lid strategy, which has an end date in mind. This approach involves regularly reducing the amount of tobacco that is allowed to be sold each year to achieve a specified level of commercial sales. Such a measure could also be aided through continuously decreasing the number and density of tobacco retailers. Overall, retail availability would decrease, thereby decreasing initiation and marketing exposure and increasing long-term cessation. So a couple of ideas there. Number one is making it so that the age to smoke is, let's say, uh, 21 this year. And then next year it's 22 and next year it's 23 and then 24. And in 30 years, you need to be 54 years of age to buy tobacco products. So uh, I, I can only imagine when, you know, Tom's 70 uh, year old friend has to like go into the convenience store uh, because Tom is uh, 68 and uh, his friend, uh, you know, can show his ID and get cigarettes and then pass them off like, you know, the 19-year-olds and the 16-year-olds used to do. Now it's going to be uh, sexagenarians and septagenarians that are doing that uh, in the back alley behind the variety store. So I don't have skin in the game here. I am not a smoker. I enjoy the odd cigar. I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, I don't actually care for any personal reasons about how available smoking is. I must admit, I like the idea of going into a restaurant and not having to smell cigarette smoke, but I would firmly defend the right of any restaurant if they wanted to in my libertarian utopia of saying this is a restaurant that allows smoking. This is a, a restaurant that allows smokers. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. So uh, let's be real. Smoking and well, smokers have become a group that it is very easy and very hip and trendy to discriminate against. And the last safe place that a smoker has is their own property, their own home. Now, many smokers choose not to smoke in their home because they know it damages the home. It affects resale value. They choose not to. That's a choice they make. But if you buy a house, you own a house, it is yours. The idea that any government bureaucrat would be entertaining a ban, a statutory regulation on your ability to do what you want in your own home with a substance that, by the way, is still legal to purchase and consume, at least for now, is absolutely absurd. And people can raise questions about, oh, well, it's not really enforceable. Oh, well, they're not really talking about doing it. But this is, again, this is a, a policy that they say is consistent with an international convention that Canada has adopted, that Canada has signed on to. So this is when I talk about why global treaties are so dangerous. This is exactly what I mean, because you have a treaty that tries to pull a country in a direction, into a domestic policy direction that it wouldn't normally go to. And, and interestingly enough, I, this I just shared the, the clips from her presentation. You can watch the whole thing. We link to it in our article over at True North. I don't know if they would extend this to vaping as well. Uh, because, I mean, if you want to vape in your own home, who the heck cares? Again, I've, I've never vaped. I, I know people who do, and I, I know pe who, people who swear by it as a tool that helps them or has helped them mitigate smoking. I also know people who have never smoked that have started vaping, and that was their introduction into tobacco. So I, I'm not going to claim that this is 100% a positive. All I can share is the anecdotal, the anecdata I've collected from having looked at this issue in the past. But again, if they're going to put restrictions on smoking, it stands to reason 
reason they would probably extend them to vaping as well, because many of the restrictions that already exist on where you can smoke do apply to e-cigarettes and vaping. So even your private home, even your private home is no longer available to you if some of these bureaucrats have their way. Now, on that panel discussion that uh, Laura Smith from Health Canada did, there was a uh, one uh, focus, uh, one woman from a European agency. I think it was DG Santé, and I it's like the one of the European uh, health agencies. And she was saying, well, you know, I know it's controversial. We aren't moving on it just yet. But she was almost like joking about it as though, oh, yeah, people people take issue with this. But at a certain point, I, I am confident that someone is going to in Canada uh, put this forward as a serious policy proposition. So I can say uh, I, I can do the old you heard it here first line. And this is, I think, where we get into uh, the Global Compact for Migration, the uh, pandemic treaty that the World Health Organization is pushing, a lot of these other international organizations that have these agendas. And everyone says, oh, well, you know, what's the big deal? They can talk about whatever they want uh, abroad. Well, these policies that we see in Canada coming domestically are oftentimes justified because a government wants to comply with a treaty it signed abroad. So it might even be worth, I should look up where COP12 is. It might even be worth going to uh, see this tobacco control summit in action next time. I'm just imagining, uh, so again, I'm not a smoker, but if I were to go to the tobacco control summit, I'd have to like just get a big giant, like cartoonish sized pipe and just like, you know, smoke it outside the main door just, uh, just to be a contrarian because that's where we've gotten in the process of politics, just uh, smoking to own the globalists or something like that. Kids, I'm not recommending you do that. Anyway, I uh, wanted to talk about this uh, story that uh, came out kind of under the radar here because CBC, you may recall, was paying a lot of money in executive bonuses while implementing and imposing layoffs on its own people. Uh, CBC, it's hard to believe with their $1.4 billion a year subsidy that they are ever going to be cash strapped, but uh, they talk about their budget as though the sky is falling, as though they're bleeding, they're starved, they have no money, and yet... And yet, courtesy of Blacklock's reporter, and then it was picked up by the Western Standard, Catherine Tate, who is the CEO of CBC, who makes, I believe, about half a million dollars a year running CBC. She claimed in the span of one year, November 1st, uh, 2021 to November 1st, 2023, uh, according to ATIP records, $119,000 in expenses for junkets. Uh, these uh, very glitzy foreign trips, including to Prague in the Czech Republic and Hollywood in California. Uh, this was all being done, but well, CBC was claiming a budgetary shortfall of about $125 million and warning of employee job cuts, which we saw, of course, last year implemented. Now, Catherine Tate was saying, oh, yes, you know, we're facing rising costs of operations and productions. And let's be real, her $119,000 junkets did not break the bank. But it, it certainly shows the imbalance of it. Now, there are a lot of private media companies that are not uh, doing this sort of stuff. And there are a lot who are. But you know what, at least if they're doing it privately, it is shareholders who are the ones ultimately responsible for assessing how well or poorly the company is being managed. CBC is a crown corporation. 
We, the Canadian taxpayers, are the shareholders, yet we don't really have a say. In fact, we don't have a say at all in how CBC manages its funds and manages its assets. We're just supposed to sit back and accept that this is all happening. Now, uh, private media is hemorrhaging. Private media has had to get government bailouts to continue to run. Uh, CBC just goes to the government hat in hand and generally gets what it wants. Uh, you may recall Justin Trudeau famously giving CBC reporter David Cochran a poutine, well, proudly tell, telling him that a liberal government will always look out for CBC. Well, uh, maybe Catherine Tate needed a few more poutines to make up for the $119,000 she was spending on these business class travel junkets. Uh, we did see last week mass layoffs from Bell. Uh, Bell has uh, had a number of issues in the past. They sold off a, a ton of radio stations. Now that's near and dear to my heart as a former talk radio guy. And they continued that sell-off last week, uh, shutting down or getting rid of a number of stations, including in small and medium markets. And even their large uh, operations, their major newsrooms in Toronto, have had to trim down significantly on staff. In fact, when you looked at the list of jobs, it was hard to imagine there being anyone left after cutting 4,000 800 jobs. The largest round of layoffs, one article said, in 30 years, ending multiple shows. Now, I have had a lot of criticism about legacy media, but I do not at all celebrate the decline of media. I don't celebrate 4,800 people being out of work. I, I do think that when people try to cling to a, an old approach to things that isn't working, it's not healthy or constructive, but I don't celebrate it. And the Liberal government has wanted to make Bell the scapegoat here. Justin Trudeau had this to say on Friday. On the Bell Canada layoffs of 4,800 people across the country, your heritage minister accused Bell Canada of breaking its promise to invest in local news after receiving $40 million in regulatory relief funding. What is your view of that company's layoffs and what is your commitment to future government support with that company? I'm furious. This is a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better. We have seen over the past years journalistic outlets, radio stations, small community newspapers bought up by corporate entities who then lay off journalists, you know, change the offering, the quality of offering to people, and then when people don't watch as much or engage as much, the corporate entity says, oh, see, they're not profitable anymore. We're going to sell them off. This is the erosion, not just of journalism, of quality local journalism at a time where people need it more than ever, given misinformation and disinformation, but it's eroding our very democracy. So yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about what's just happened. And look, I, I think that a lot of the criticism is warranted. Bell Media cashed a lot of money from the government, and there was, I think, an expectation there that, okay, you're doing this to protect jobs in journalism, and then to turn around and say, we're getting rid of this. Uh, TV was very hard hit, uh, is uh, something that is going to sting. But a lot of the problems that have happened here have been because the government was getting into and meddling in this idea of subsidizing media in the first place. When government starts to say, we're going to give you this money in regulatory relief, we're going to mandate this much money from Facebook and Google, uh, all of a sudden you're creating this framework where government has an expectation that private companies are operating in ways that they would not operate without government's hand being there. 
And these companies are looking and saying, okay, yeah, this little pittance we're getting from Google, courtesy of Bill C-18, isn't enough to overhaul or isn't enough to underwrite this, div this division of our operation that is not profitable. I've told my story on the show time and time again about how bloated CBC is, about how many people they have doing jobs that even their private sector competitors at CTV and Global do not have, let alone independent media startups like yours truly and, and True North. But the reason I bring that up is to say that these, these operations have not done in many ways the work that they've needed to do to downsize and trim down in a sustainable way. Now, again, I don't celebrate people being out of work, but you know what? The folks that uh, you know run the printing presses are not as valuable as the folks that run the digital for newspapers. So a lot of uh, TV reporters have to shoot their own videos, so there are not a lot of jobs for camera operators compared to what they're usually there used to be historically, and at some larger players they may be. Uh, all of this is tragic for individuals, but it is part of an evolution. And when you get government uh, trying to delay the inevitable, it is a recipe for exactly what happened on Friday. So government, I think, has to take its hands off. Now, uh, that means that companies will either sink or swim. I have a hard time believing the doomsday scenario that there is no business model for news. I think the existence of organizations like True North proves there is a business model for news, but you have to be creative, you have to be nimble, and you cannot rely on the state and you cannot rely on old practices. Now, uh, this is something that I think the government desperately, desperately needs to learn as a lesson. We just have a few minutes left in the show here, but we'll bring in our friend Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Chris, you know, I think there's a cautionary tale in all of this that government is uh, delaying the inevitable. And, and when government gets involved in subsidizing, all of a sudden, it adds a new dimension into business decisions, which is that uh, the government can turn around and point to Bell and say, well, hang on, you, you don't have the right to do that because we've been giving you money. So this is entirely inevitable in my view. Yes, uh, you must be shaking your head because I think you and I have had this warning conversation now for the past five, six, maybe more years than this. This is what happens when you start relying on the government for your payroll. It's even worse, Andrew, when you have a trade like journalism. We have a calling like journalism. So I know a lot of us who went to journalism school and some of us who didn't, who truly feel journalism is a calling. We want to speak truth to power. We want to comfort the afflicted. We want to find the answers to our W5 questions. Let that show rest in peace. Very sad to see that show go. But then you become beholden to the very thing you're supposed to be holding accountable, the state. And look what's happened. Um, full disclosure, I worked for CTV for many years. The vast majority of the time, everything went really well. So it's not a sour grapes thing. I'm appealing, though, to my former colleagues, some of whom have lost their jobs, to take a look at this funding structure and realize what has happened in that your mother corporation, okay, has taken money while saying, unless you do this, we're going to cut jobs and news. And they've turned around and done that anyway. Two weeks after, I don't know if you noted this earlier in your show, Andrew, two weeks after Bell Let's Talk, right? What worse thing for mental health happens than losing your job? Very few things. And it used to be a little thing among the newsrooms. It was kind of grim and macabre. But they used to joke among the rank and file workers of, oh, oh, Bell Let's Talk days coming up because they knew that's often when the company would time layoff notices after, right after. 
I'm not joking. So it's, I've, have car I've carried that bag out of my drawer at my desk. I've cleaned that out many times, quite often leaving Bell. Again, not fired, but laid off, downturned, furloughed, all those things. And so we're in a massive change right now when it comes to government. Okay, we're seeing the state broadcaster CBC coming under heavy fire for taking all this government money and still blowing Canadians money on bonuses and wastefulness with their CEO. We're seeing more and more mainstream journalists going on government payroll and we're seeing trust just take a nosedive. People aren't watching. They're not listening. They're tuning out of mainstream media. And here on the other side, hopefully we're seeing a rebirth. We're seeing a resurgence of independent journalism. That's my hope is that we can get shows like this becoming viewed more and more often. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, one of the things that I would point out here for people is that there is money available in media. You look at the number of people that are making uh, big money on Substack. You look at uh, people that are, uh, I wouldn't say making big money, but people that are able to, to make a decent living through uh, podcasting and through other work. And it's different. And, and you know, there, there are questions that you can raise about the journalistic rigor of all of that is, you know, Barry Weiss's Substack uh, to the same standard as Glenn Greenwald the intercept to the same standard as your local paper and and these are questions that consumers i think that readers have to adjudicate for themselves so i, I think the problem here is that there, there's been a lot of coasting on legacy credentials that have been taking place where we are the baseline we are the benchmark we are the gold standard and that i think there's a bit, been a bit of denial there which has contributed to where we are yes yes and it's hard because uh, I've been back and forth. I've done mainstream media. I've done kind of this mix of independent and mainstream, which was Sun News Network, which has given birth to a lot of different new independent shows. And so I've been through that rigmarole and I've been through the agony of losing your job, having your network shut down, CRTC getting involved, all that stuff happening. And so again, my hope is that both through Here's one thing. I think we need to take a long, hard look at the clubs that are journalists within capital cities. Okay. That includes the parliamentary press gallery of which I was a member for many years. We need to break up those cool kids clubs because it causes groupthink. Okay. It makes them think that number one, they all need to say the same thing and ask the same and write questions. And if you don't, you're not a cool kid, okay? Because you get peer pressure there. Two, it kind of insulates them from the realities and the storms of what is going on in the rest of the media world. And it makes them start thinking that they don't need to change and that they don't need to alter their formats and they don't need to change their command structure. And they do, they clearly do. And that going to government is not going to help them. It's not going to save them. Uh, Pierre Polyev just addressed a lot of this, conservative leader, opposition leader, addressed a lot of this in the last press conference he just did on ArriveCan. And he held forth on the problem of the government handing over millions of dollars to the media, yet the media turning around and axing people's jobs anyway. And this is not CBC. Again, I can't believe we're having this conversation. This is supposedly private media corporations. So I can see all of this kind of coming to a, a pointy end within the next year or so. I think you're going to see a big, a big shakeup. Yeah, very well said. We'll uh, have you back on next week. As always, although it's family day in Ontario, so uh, next Monday. So we'll have to, can we get you on next Tuesday? I can do Monday or Tuesday. My kids can wait. They're good. <laughs> well, I'm not doing Monday. So, okay. you're, uh, so All right, I'll see you'll, you you'll be here wondering where the show is uh, to introduce you, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thanks, Andrew.
All right. Yeah. Fam I forget how many provinces do family day because we do. I'm just looking at my calendar here. So I think it's, it's family day in uh, Alberta, BC and Ontario. And it is Nova Scotia heritage day. It's Islander day in Prince Edward Island. And it's Louis Riel day in Manitoba, which I don't approve of for reasons I may share with you next week if I decide to unload on that. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, no, no, Louis Rialde, we don't do on the Andrew Lawton show, but uh, Sean is just happy he has Monday off. So uh, Sean, whether you're doing Louis Rialde or Islander Day or Family Day, no, you don't need to come to work next Monday. So, all right, that does it for us for today. We will be back in uh, 23 hours and uh, 50 minutes. No, 23 hours and 10 minutes here on the Andrew Lawton show, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.